Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 74. I mentioned a couple of episodes back that book two of the Psalter takes us through the life of David and up to the high water mark of his era as manifested in the peaceful and prosperous reign of his son Solomon. Psalm 72 is a song from the summit, you might say. Book three, which begins with Psalm 73, gives us psalms of descent. These are songs from a season of decline. And the psalm open before us now, Psalm 74, is actually a psalm from the very nadir of Jewish decline. Almost all scholars understand this psalm as reflecting upon the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 587 B.C. So Derek Kidner, for example, says, Most interpreters agree in placing the psalm within a lifetime at most after the events of 587. That, of course, raises the question, in what sense, then, can this be considered a maskil of Asaph as the ascription so designates it? There are two main opinions. One is that it was written by Asaph, the contemporary of David, but that he wrote this psalm in a prophetic sense. He foresaw the destruction of the temple, and he wrote this prayer to help the people process that future event. A few commentators prefer this view, and many permit it without favoring it. The favored or majority view is that this is not the Asaph associated with David. There are many Asaphs in the Bible, just as there are many Nehemiahs and Abimelechs and Phicals. Names repeat within families, and it may simply be that within the singing family of the Levites, Asaph became a very common name. That is not even close to being a stretch. It may also be that the name became something of an honorary title. By that, I mean that the head of the family of the Levites in charge of the singing was just always called Asaph. Again, that's not even close to being a stretch. I mentioned the names Abimelech and Phicol. Most scholars understand those names as being titular ascriptions. The name Abimelech, which comes up multiple times in the Genesis narrative, may simply have come to mean hereditary king. The word literally means my father is king. So Abimelech might just have been the name given to a prince when he assumed the throne. Just like queens and popes today take on honorary and traditional titles when they come into their roles and powers. Phicol, too, uh, may simply mean general or commander of the king's forces. There are several of these sorts of names in the Bible, and Asaph seems to have been one of them. This psalm, then, was likely written by the Levite in charge of the worship, shortly after the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in A.D. 587. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription and proceeding on to verse 1. A maskil of Asaph. Maskil, by the way, means a teaching poem. Verse 1. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? 
Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Notice that the psalm assumes that God is sovereign over everything that happens to his people, whether good or bad. Isn't that interesting? So many Christians today are really functional dualists. They view the world as caught between two rival powers. When something good happens, they ascribe it to God. When something bad happens, they ascribe it to the devil. No one in the Bible talks that way. In the Bible, the devil is a dog on a chain, yappy and annoying to be sure, but only a tool in the hand of Almighty God. If God gives him leash, then he will do his worst. But the one who holds the leash is really the only one who truly matters. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Not, oh God, why were you napping when the devil launched his assault? No, no one in the Bible talks that way. God is sovereign. So if your temple has been destroyed, it is because God was saying something that you need to hear. That's a good lesson for us right there. Asaph goes on to describe to God what he sees at ground level. Verse 4, your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own sign for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God and the land. The psalmist is obviously overwhelmed by what he sees. He never expected that anything like this would ever happen. Apparently, he was like the rest of the Jews, believing that the temple was a sort of religious talisman that guaranteed the favor and protection of the Lord. The Jews of that day thought that that the ark would protect them. You remember... Uh, when the story of, of when the sons of Eli took the ark out to do battle with the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they thought that having the presence of the ark with them would guarantee victory, that God would have to fight for them, even though the sons of Eli were despicable and immoral men. They didn't think a great deal about that because they had the ark. They had God by the nose, right? He would have to perform on their behalf. But he didn't have to, and he didn't. And they died. And all Israel was astonished. It was exactly the same in the days just before the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah the prophet made this exact point in his famous temple sermon. He said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah 7, 3-4. Apparently there were false prophets operating in the time of Jeremiah saying that God was obligated to protect and prosper his people because they were the custodians of the temple. This is the temple of the Lord. We've got God by the nose, they thought. He has to look out for us because without us, who would keep the candles burning in his house? Who would keep the lights on? He needs us. He he is obligated to us. Therefore, we can behave however we please. They thought that God had hitched his wagon to them, and now, unless he wanted to be embarrassed, he would have to show up and fight on their behalf. That was the logic of the day. 
and apparently Asaph had bought into it at least to some extent. So when God cleared the way for the army of Babylon and took the field on their behalf, he was stunned. He was gobsmacked. His mouth was shut and his theology was rattled. And in his confusion, he did what he should. He bundled it up and he took it to the Lord in prayer. Well done. That's exactly what you're supposed to do when God rattles your cage. Verse 9, he goes on to say, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Following the destruction of Jerusalem, you will recall that many people were deported off to Babylon. By the time this psalm was written, Daniel was there, Ezekiel was there, and Jeremiah was a captive to a bunch of rebels who'd foolishly fled to Egypt. So here's Asaph holding down the fort after the house has been burned down. No prophet, no one to bring a word from the Lord, just him. And so he does what he can. And what he can do is go to God in prayer. And when he does, he is reminded of some things that he ought to have known all along. He begins to speak them aloud in verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever... Uh, flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You've fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You've made summer and winter. When Asaph went to the Lord, he remembered who the Lord was. He was the sovereign one, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Sabaoth, the king over all creation. Who can stand against him? No one. Therefore, if Babylon came here, then God must have led them here. This must be for our salvation. That is where his mind is being slowly but surely led. Verse 18, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove, the NKJV or the KJV has here, your turtle dove. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the Wild beasts, do not forget the life of your poor forever. Plumer says here, the church is here called thy turtle dove because she is gentle, sorrowful, defenseless, hating noise and strife, having neither a disposition nor weapons to protect herself and being loved of God, closed quote. Asaph sees that God's doing big things in the world. He's turning the world upside down for some purpose related to his glory and his purposes of salvation in the earth, but he points out to God that his covenant people are small and vulnerable and liable to get crushed between the massive wheels of historical tumult, and he intercedes on their behalf. Verse 20, Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. 
Perhaps Asaph remembers here that even though God will use a wicked power as a tool of his wrath and purpose, he will also turn and judge that tool. Perhaps Asaph remembers that God said and did that very thing long ago in the time of the Assyrians. God referred to the Assyrians as the rod of his anger, and he used that rod to instruct and punish the northern kingdom. But then he said in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 12 to 16, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who yields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Close quote. God used Assyria. He opened the gates for them and blinded the eyes of the watchmen of northern Israel. But then he judged Assyria, and he punished their king for his arrogance and unlicensed brutality. Asaph is asking that he would do so once again. There's no hope expressed of deliverance in this psalm. It's it's actually an unusual feature. Only a prayer for God to remember the frailty and vulnerability of his people and a request that God see and attend to the foolish scoffing of their oppressors. This is how you pray at the very bottom of your valley. This is a prayer for dust and ashes. This is a prayer for the days and weeks after your towers fall. This is a prayer for calamity. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. 
your word is a lamp unto my feet. 